1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So last year, uh, my family was going camping. And I'm not a big camper. In fact, I had never camped uh, since I had gotten married. And before then, I hadn't really camped in a long time before that. So I hadn't camped in probably, you know, eight, ten years, something like that. And I don't have any camping equipment. Uh, but I'm going camping, and we're going to this cabin, and so I'm thinking ahead to well, how are we going to cook food when we get there? Uh, I don't have a grill. I don't have any grilling utensils. I don't have anything like that. And so I'm like, I don't really want to go there and just pop stuff in the microwave uh, just like at home. I want to go there and have the real experience. So I'm like, I need to find a grill. So I remembered this grill that I saw at a store at Sam's Club, and it was the most cool-looking grill you could imagine. It was like this tabletop grill, had this really sleek design, uh, blue, and the thing that was cool about it was uh, it was designed in such a way that the outside didn't get hot, and so you could place it literally anywhere, and it wouldn't burn the surface underneath. And it came with a carrying case, and it came with this little dial that you can turn it up and down to adjust the temperature. Um, the only problem was it was like 80 bucks, so it was pretty expensive for a little barbecued grill. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get it. We don't have much room at home. Uh, I can use it, you know, grill stuff on my porch or whatnot, so I get this grill. So after I get it, I realize you need some special charcoal for this grill and special, special lighter fluid. So I couldn't find the lighting fluid anywhere. Go to, go, go to Walmart, look online. The only place that they said it had it was Lowe's. And so I go to Lowe's, went to the place, A53, bottom shelf, look there, there's nothing there. So I go and ask somebody. They have no idea even what I'm talking about, let alone where it is. Ask like another person, another person. I think I was on like the third person, and finally somebody led me to find this lighter fluid. So I also need utensils. So I found, got some utensils, and I got this special charcoal, the special lighter fluid, the special utensils, and I'm ready to grill. So I go to the campsite, and I think the first night we were having hot dogs. And I followed the directions, and this grill had this kind of interesting design where you put the charcoal in the middle, and then kind of on top of the charcoal, there's this little dish where you put the special lighter fluid. So I follow the directions, and I turn up the uh, heat, and it just doesn't heat up all that much. And I think, that's kind of weird. Doesn't seem very hot, but you know, I'm cooking hot dogs and uh, it kind of warmed them up enough to eat them, but didn't really charcoal them very much. So I said, I must be doing something wrong. So I read the directions and reread the directions and reread the directions and watch, uh, look for YouTube videos and look online at reviews. And I'm like, I, maybe I didn't let it simmer long enough. Maybe I just 
need to light it, let it simmer for longer. So I light it, let it simmer. Next morning, cook some eggs, some toast, and it kind of worked okay. Not real hot, but it worked. So I'm like, maybe I need to put some more lighter fluid on it. So we come to dinner time, we were having hamburgers, and I just lather the lighter fluid all over it. I give it ample time to get started, and then I'm sitting there with these hamburgers on the grill, and I'm turning up the volume and just watching them and hoping that they heat up and they're not heating up. And there's this little tiny ring about this big where the, there was some heat that it could kind of heat up. And literally, I spent like an hour or an hour and 15 minutes just cooking these hamburgers. So after that, I said, Stephanie, next time we're ordering a pizza. <laughs> the thing was, I had invested a lot in this grill, paid a lot of money, $80, and I had gone around looking for this special lighter fluid and special charcoal, and I didn't want to admit that there was a problem with this grill. I didn't want to admit that fundamentally it was flawed. I mean, it looked good on the surface. It had this cool design. The idea was cool, but it just didn't work. The design was flawed. There's no way it could heat up like it was supposed to. In the ancient world, especially in Corinth, as we talked about last week, people love to listen to a good speaker, to oratory. The ESV study Bible says this, the art of rhetorical persuasion was highly valued in the Greco-Roman world, and professional orators frequented large cities like Corinth, giving impressive displays of their ability to entertain and instruct. It was kind of like people today who like to binge on TED Talks. If you're not familiar with what a TED Talk is, it's basically where they have these different experts and uh, they're all great speakers and they use illustrations and pictures and uh, really have great speeches. And it's almost like that's what's happening in Corinth. People just sit around, like to listen to TED Talks. And the thing is, when they listen to these talks, it's not just that they like to be entertained, that they have this idea that beneath the surface there's wisdom. Beneath the surface, these people really know what's happening in the world. It's like if you watch one of these TED Talks, you hear this persuasive speech, and you feel like that person has a handle on life. They know what they're talking about, and that's what the Corinthians are experiencing. They're picking out speakers that they like, that are persuasive, and they essentially believe that they were full of wisdom. And they had this belief that if it's persuasive, if it looks good on the surface, then there's wisdom underneath. But Paul is going to uh, describe here that what glitters isn't always gold. And what actually lies beneath much of human wisdom is actually foolishness. Just like my grill, it was a good idea. It was a good concept. It looked good on the surface. Beneath the surface, it was just a dumb design. It didn't work. I think that's the nature of human wisdom as Paul describes it. I think the last 18 months have kind of highlighted that fact. Each day, we hear experts on the news predicting this, predicting that, and then a month goes by and you find out they're completely wrong. And then they change and predict something else, and mostly they're wrong. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us when we spend, you know, people spend thousands of dollars on meteorological equipment and you can't predict what the weather is going to be like the next day, or even sometimes a few hours. I think the history of humanity is a history, a history of believing experts, believing some people understand what the world is all about. The experts once said that the earth was flat. 
Experts once said that the planets revolved around the Earth. Experts in the 1930s said that a rocket would never enter into space. One 19th century physicist and engineer suggested that X-rays were a hoax. The idea of an airplane was impossible. Albert Einstein suggested that nuclear energy was impossible to create. Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM, said this, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. A 1966 Time Magazine article with supposed ex experts predicted the idea of online shopping or remote shopping, but they s predicted that it would be a flop. No one would be interested in it. Amazon would beg to differ. A lady named Rose Eveleth in the Smithsonian Magazine wrote an article called Why Experts Are Almost Always Wrong. And she said, every time there's a national disaster, a gigantic event, a shooting, a breakthrough, really any news at all, you can rely on television news to find an expert. Some of them know quite a lot about what happened, what will happen, and why. But when it comes to a lot of experts, they really have no idea what they're talking about. She cites a study done in the 1980s by a man by the name of Philip Tetlock, and he had 284 uh, political uh, experts make hundreds of predictions. And after they made these hundreds of predictions, he just waited to see how many of those predictions came true. And he found that their predictions were only slightly better than a random guess. He found that their predictions were far worse than just a basic computer statistical model. And he found that people actually predicted more accurately when they were predicting uh, an event that was outside of their field of expertise. That there was something that they weren't actually experts in. Yet despite all the times that experts have gotten it wrong, all you have to do is put a doctor in someone's name, describe them as an expert, and we're all years. We feel like they know what they're talking about. They have a handle on life. And I think that's the context that Paul is talking about. These Corinthians, or these orators would go around, they were persuasive. They were great speakers, and people thought they have wisdom. They know what life is all about. Paul says, beneath the surface, really, there's nothing there. And the, the teaching of the gospel, on the, on the other hand, seems like foolishness. Now, the Greeks would talk about virtue and strength and power and wisdom. And Paul taught, the apostles preached a crucified Christ. The uh, Roman philosopher Cicero once said this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. And so the Greeks talked about all these things. Paul's talking about a cross, and to these Roman, these philosophers, and to the outside world, it would have seemed like foolishness that he's talking about this instrument of torture that's reserved for the worst of criminals, and that God could actually die on this cross. But it was the same thing for the Jews as well. The Jews believed that a man who was hung on a cross was cursed by God. One scholar goes so far as to say uh, a crucified Messiah is kind of an oxymoron. It's kind of like fried ice. It just doesn't melt. You either have the Messiah who's high and mighty and the Son of God, or you have a criminal who's cursed of God and crucified. You can't have both. And so to the world, both to Jews and to Gentiles, the teaching of the cross seemed like foolishness. Paul says that it's Christ crucified as a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So imagine you had a press conference and 
Paul's time. You have Greek philosophers, you have Jewish rabbis, experts in their field. And you ask them, what is God like? None of them would say, God dies on a cross. None of them that would say that. That would be foolishness to them. Remember how the Apostle Paul was going around and murdering Christians. And I always wondered, what was it about Christians that got Paul so angry? I mean, he was chasing them down to murder them. Why was he so angry at Christians? I think this is maybe part of it. I mean, he's thinking, how dare you say that my God, this holy God, would die on a cross? How dare you say that God would lower himself like that? And so Paul says the teaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who don't know the Lord. But for those who are being saved, he says, or those who are believers, Paul says that the gospel is two things. The first thing he says is that the gospel is the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. It seems like foolishness to the world, but it's the power of God. That is, the gospel is not simply a philosophy. It's not simply a theory. It actually has the power to transform people's lives. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had this a number of times where, you know, maybe you're in a store or a restaurant and you have to use the restroom. And so you ask somebody, where's the restroom? And they'll say, all right, you just go down this hallway, go to the second doorway, turn right, then go down the stairs. When you get to the bottom of the stairs, you can go left and right, or right, go left, and then go enter through the third door and then turn right. And you'll see it. It's right there. You can't miss it once you get there. And then... You have no idea where you're going, but you don't want them to have to repeat the whole story again. So you just start wandering around, and you have no hopes of actually getting there. Another experience I've had is when it's a similar situation, it's kind of a difficult place to get to, and the person is like, all right, I'll take you there. Let me show you where to go. I think religion is kind of like the first instance. Religion is like, this is where you need to go, but doesn't tell us how to get there. And when we follow after a religion or a philosophy, we're just kind of wandering around, never able to arrive at the truth. But the gospel, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Jesus says, when you're weak, I'm strong. Jesus says, when you fall, I'll pick you up. When you can't walk, I'll carry you. The gospel has power. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a religion. It has the power to transform lives. It's transformed men and women, boys and girls throughout history. It's transformed thieves. It's transformed murderers. It's transformed the sexually immoral. It's transformed liars. It's transformed all types of people. That's why we have the signs up that say Jesus changes everything. It's not simply a philosophy and opinion. It's the power of God. So Paul says the gospel is the power of God. The second, second Paul says the gospel is wisdom, even though it seems like foolishness. Think about people who are not believers tend to view God today. There's two kind of extremes. Uh, on the one hand, you have some people that view God as kind of this benevolent Santa Claus figure, that he's completely loving and kind, and he would never hurt a fly, and he just wants us all to get along, and just kind of passive. Now, that's all well and good, but it doesn't help someone who's struggling with injustice. It doesn't help someone whose child was killed by a drunk driver. It doesn't tell, hurt, help someone whose loved one was taken away from them. It doesn't have, help someone who had something precious that was stolen from them. I mean, that God who just kind of 
floats around and is affirming everyone. It just doesn't help when we're experiencing injustice. On the other hand, people think about God, some people think about God as kind of very restrictive and requiring a lot of us. That if you have to be a really, really good person, if you're a really good person, then maybe you can achieve God's favor. But the gospel is different. The gospel changes us. The gospel is for all. See, these Roman philosophers, they had these conceptions of who God was. And in their minds, the God that could be reached was a God that only the elite could reach. Only people who had knowledge, only people who had wisdom, only people who were morally put together, they're the people that could reach God. But the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for the broken. The gospel is for the thief. The gospel is for the sinner. The gospel is for anyone who would come to Christ. And therefore, Paul says that there's no grounds of boasting before God. Because in the gospel, God deals seriously with sin, but it's open to all. The, the philosopher cannot boast that he's found God through wisdom. The moral person cannot boast that he's earned God's favor through his morality. The blessings of God are open to all. So in the cross, we see the wisdom of God, that God is both, mer both merciful and just. He cares about injustice. Sin, he will not allow to go unpunished. And so we see that he uh, demonstrates that in the cross, but he's also merciful that any of us, no matter what we've done, no matter what our background is, we can come to him and find grace. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 3, that he's that Christ is or God is both a just and justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. So, what does this mean for us today? What does all of this talk uh, about the wisdom and the power of God mean for us today? First, it's a reminder that we need to delight in the cross. We need to delight in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The cross is the centerpiece of our faith. In the cross, we see the heart of God, that he's both just and he's loving at the same time. It's not something that we move beyond each day, uh, move beyond, but we, something that we return to each day. When we're longing for justice, when we see the brokenness in the world, we need to just look at the cross and see that God cares about injustice. When we're longing for mercy, when the pain of guilt is overwhelming us, when we feel like we have no hope, we look to the cross and find grace and find hope. The cross changes everything. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says this, Life is wasted if we do not, do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. So that's the obvious application that we need to keep Christ and the cross at the center of our consciousness, the center of all we do as believers. And I think there's something else, though, we can learn from this passage. And it's something that maybe you've never heard before in church, but I think it's very important for us to realize. And that is that God's plan for your life is crazy. God's plan for your life is crazy. If you look throughout Scripture, God's plan for each and every follower of Jesus, it's crazy. I don't know what the specifics are for your life, but I know that God's plan for you is crazy. You take Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his homeland, and he promised he's going to make him into a great nation. Now, Sarah gets beyond her childbearing years, and yet they're to become a great nation. But they don't have any children. 
it would be crazy to believe that that could actually happen, that he could become a great nation in that context. The Israelites become a nation. Abraham does become uh, a nation. They are delivered from Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and God says, go into the promised land, take the promised land. And then the spies go out, and ten of them come back, and they say, hey, they're really big, they're really strong, we cannot take them, we should just retreat. In other words, it would be crazy to believe that we could defeat these people. Then you have someone named David. David was just a shepherd boy. If you had to take bets on who was going to become king, you wouldn't choose David. You'd choose one of his brothers who were big and strong and mighty. It'd be crazy to think that David become king. You get to Jesus' life. Jesus comes and he experiences, he meets these people who are experiencing these health difficulties. A woman who had a discharge of blood for years. A man who was born blind. It'd be crazy to believe that their situation could change. Jesus calls Peter to join him walking on the water. Peter's probably thinking to himself, well, I've been in water before, and when you walk out on water, you sink. I mean, it's crazy to believe that I can walk out on the water to you. Jesus is crucified. He's on the cross. The soldiers come, and they put a spear through his side, and water and blood flow down. He's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. It would be crazy to believe that he would be coming back. And yet three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave. God's plan for our lives is crazy. He delights in doing crazy things in our lives. I often wonder, why doesn't God show us what he's going to give us or what, what he has for us five or ten years down the road? And there may be a number of reasons for that. He wants us to trust him and whatnot. But I think one of the reasons is it's crazy. And if we saw where we're going, it would just blow our minds. You know, we think about that. We have our lives planned out of how things are going to turn out and our own wisdom, how we think that God should handle things and what our life should be like. And then God often throws us a curveball. And sometimes it's crazy because we're on this crazy mountaintop. We never thought that we would be there. Sometimes it's crazy because we're in this valley. We never expected to experience these, experiencing these difficulties that we've been experiencing. Life following after God is just playing crazy sometimes. Maybe it's like Sarah. God told Abraham and Sarah what he was going to do, that she was going to have a child in her old age, and she laughed. She just thought it was so humorous that God could actually do something like that. God often does crazy things in our life. Maybe it's a change of jobs. Maybe it's allowing us to experience severe illness. Maybe it's providing for us an extraordinary way. God does crazy things, and in those moments, often those moments, they don't compute with our human reasoning. They just don't make sense. They don't make sense that God would provide in a certain way, but sometimes it doesn't make sense why God would allow certain things into our life. Why would God allow me or my family to experience that? In those moments, we have a choice whether we're going to trust in God or not. And I believe that we can trust in God. We can trust in God because God's plans for our lives, and they're not just crazy, but they're also beautiful. 
They're crazy, but they're also beautiful. The cross of Christ, the gospel, it's foolishness to the world. To Greeks and to Gentiles, it was silly that a God would die on the cross. That he would experience that humiliation. It was foolishness. It made no sense. But it was also beautiful. It also meant salvation for all who would trust in him. And the same thing is true for our own lives. The Bible says in Romans 8.28, God works for the good of those who loved him. Those who are called according to his purpose. God is weaving a story in our lives. He's painting a picture. It might seem crazy. It might seem foolish to us in the moment. But he's creating something beautiful. There's a man by the name of John Feinberg. He wrote a book called The Many Faces of Evil several years ago. And in this book, he describes how um, his, kind of str his family struggle as his wife was diagnosed with a disease called Hunting Huntington's chorea. It's a genetically transmitted disease that causes a de deterioration in the brain uh, and causes a deterioration of physical and psychological abilities. And so she was diagnosed with this, and uh, they were worried not just about her, but also about her kids. I mean, they had three kids at this time, had no idea that she had this disease, and now they're worried that it, kids are going to have it because there's a 50-50 chance that if a parent has it, the child's going to have it as well. So they're dealing with all this, her, her, her health difficulties and this anxiety about uh, their children, and then they discover something. They, they asked for the medical records of uh, this John's wife, Pat's, his mother, or her mother. And they discover that Pat's mother actually had this disease, unbeknownst to the family. But it was right there in her medical records. If anyone had looked, they would have found that information that she had that disease. And so John's looking back on this, and he had no idea that any of this is happening. You know, he's shortly, he had only been married for a fairly short time at this point. I mean, they have three kids, and he's looking on this and thinking, if only I would have known this, maybe I would have done stuff differently. Maybe I wouldn't have had three kids. Maybe we wouldn't have even have gotten married if I would have known this information. And he spends some time kind of questioning God. God, why didn't you show me this before I made these choices? And he comes to this conclusion. He says this. As I wrestled with that question, I began to see his love and concern for us. God kept it hidden because he wanted me to marry Pat, who's a wonderful wife. My life would be impoverished without her. And I would have missed the blessings of being married to her had I known earlier. He says, God wanted our three sons to be born. Each is a blessing and a treasure. But we would have missed that had we known earlier. And God knew that we needed to be in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ at church and at the seminary who would, not, who would love us and care for us at this darkest hour. And so he withheld that information. Not because he accidentally overlooked giving it to us, not because he is an uncaring God who delights in seeing his children suffer. He withheld it as a sign of his great care for us. He says there's a never a good time to receive such, good news, such news. But God knew that this was exactly the right time. God's plan for your life, it's crazy. It's not always the plan that you would expect. Not always the plan that you would hope for. But we can take faith, take, take delight. We can trust in the fact that God is painting something beautiful in our lives. God is 
sovereign. He is in control. He's a mighty God. He's a God who sent his son to die on the cross. What is foolishness to the world is wisdom to God. We can trust in the fact of what Paul says, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's plan for our lives, it's crazy, but it's also beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a good, mighty, and wise God. We thank you that you see what we do not see. We thank you that you are wise beyond words, that you came to the earth and died on the cross for us so that we might experience life, that you experience shame, humiliation, and ultimately death so that we might experience life. Lord, as we're living our lives, we know that you call us to different paths sometimes. Sometimes you do things in our life that just seem crazy and foolish. But we trust as your children that you're working for our good. We trust as your children that you're painting something beautiful in our lives. Lord, for anybody here who's walking through a difficult time today, Lord, give them your assurance, Lord. Give them a sense of your love. Give them your peace, Lord. Help them to know that you're the God of the cross, the God who loves us beyond compare, the God of both justice and mercy. Help us to follow you and trust in you, even when the road ahead looks crazy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.